0: You're listening to The Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics.
1: And welcome to another edition of The Domecast, our weekly look back and ahead on all things in North Carolina politics and government. The legislature has adjourned, but we have not, we are still going strong, we've Thank you for listening. This, of course, is Andy Curlis with the News and Observer. We have a good show for you. Uh, of course, there's a lot of news happening in Washington as we uh, record this uh, edition of the Domecast. Uh, Walter Jones in the news. Um, there's a lot of chaos on the Republican side in the House. Uh, we'll be following all of that in the News and Observer. Be sure to take a look at that. Uh, we have a good show. We're going to hear from uh, John Morawski, a reporter at the News and Observer, and Craig Jarvis, a really fascinating story uh, involving the uh, Department of Environmental Quality. Is it quality, John? Yes. Environmental Quality. Uh, the old D- I still call it Diener. It's uh, changed names, uh, so we'll talk about that. We'll wrap up a little bit of the legislative session uh, with a pop quiz. We'll have uh, Ben Brown here, Colin Campbell. And of course, uh, the always popular headliners of the week. Let's jump right into it. Uh, John Murawski, welcome to the Domecast. Thank you very much. Uh, So you had a really—you've been covering this issue for quite a while. This flows out of the coal ash spill, what uh, now 18 months ago, something like that. And uh, so this really uh, ended up in some litigation. And uh, a lot of uh, court documents. You've been sort of poring over them. It sounds like many boxes. Uh, bring us up to speed. What, you, know, you had a really fascinating story on the front page of the News and Observer. Bring us up to speed on uh, what you found and um, uh, what, what exactly was going on there. So uh, the
2: agency, Diener, at the time it was actually Diener, fined Duke $25.1 million back in March. Um, over uh, its handling of coal ash, over exceedances, basically that the uh, con- contaminants were too high at the uh, at the coal ash pond in the Sutton plant or at the Sutton plant near Wilmington. So Diener sued the agency at the Office of Administrative Hearings, which is a court for governmental legal issues. Uh, and Diener's allegation was that Diener didn't follow its own now, policies.
1: Now, wait, uh, I, well, I don't mean to interrupt you, but yep. the coal ash spill was not at the Sutton plant in Wilmington. Right?
2: No, the coal ash spill okay. was in. Uh, the other part of the state, okay. uh, the completely on the other side of the state, and this actually, this lawsuit has nothing to do with the coal ash. Spill. Okay, okay, uh, good. It had to do with uh, contaminants percolating from the coal ash, basically carcinogens and tox- toxic stuff that gets into the groundwater because the coal ash was dumped into just open pits, and it was just sitting there in water, and the stuff that's basically. It's, it's essentially they're poisons, really. If you if you concentrate them enough, they start flowing out, and they, they started testing the water there at, at the edge of the culp, of the pit, and they found exceedances for certain things like arsenic, thallium, uh, boron, and um, so Diener issued a huge fine, twenty five point one million dollars. And Duke sued them, basically said this fine is completely out of line because it doesn't, you're not following any of your policies for issuing fines. And so the thing went, it was going to go to trial last week and they settled at the last minute and they settled for $7 million for all 14 sites. So it's really five hundred thousand dollars per site.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, now, but it, actually, mm-hmm. they, they, it wasn't at the last minute. The uh, trial had begun. Is that right? Right. The trial was like. F- yeah.
2: Well, it was. It was a hearing. It was just a hearing before the judge. Okay. Uh, it was sure. actually a judge. Uh, uh, it was. It was an administrative law judge. It was four minutes into the hearing, and they okay. decided. So to the settle. hearing had begun. Yeah, they, right. it was underway. It was oh. basically the clock was running. They basically just did the kickoff. <laughs> the ball barely landed, and they settled. Okay. So, um, so but in preparation for this case which was filed months ago, they spent months, both sides spent months, deposing potential witnesses. They were exploring who their witnesses could be, and they were doing discovery, and they had accumulated massive amounts of documents, voluminous documents. And so I went and read some of those depositions to see what, the, what are the kinds of things that could have come up at trial. And so that's what my story was about today. And what we found, or what I found, was that one of the high ranking officials at the agency uh at the
1: state environmental at, agency, right? One sure. of the
2: top state environmental regulators mm-hmm. thought that $25 million fine was really too low, it should have been $50 million. And he was outraged at the company for uh, because what happened was that uh, EPA, the federal agency, uh, had an agreement with Duke for $100 million, and so. Uh, Diener decided that, that it was somehow a motivation for Diener to issue a $25 million fine.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, uh, let me stop you right yeah. there. There's a Craig. I want to bring Craig Jarvis in of the News & Observer. There's a political sort of backstory going on here uh, on this whole Duke-Diener uh, DEQ issue. Um, the governor uh pat mccrory of course had worked at duke and so there's anything now dealing with the state and duke there's always this uh political uh component i wonder if you might just sort of fold that in for us uh and give us a little flavor of what the administration uh posture has been towards uh duke on this yeah
3: Yeah, it's been a headache for Governor McCrory from the beginning, Uh, not just an environmental mess, but because of the fact he worked for several decades for Duke Energy, that coupled with the fact that uh, his message to the environmental department, as well as Republican legislators over the last few years, was to be more customer-friendly. Let's streamline the regulations. Let's make things more customer-friendly. So Dan River happens, and suddenly the allegation is uh, they were too customer-friendly. They didn't do enough to... To prevent this from happening or to crack down on Duke, and environmentalists said, uh, uh, Diener at the time only took action because the environmental groups forced them to. And meanwhile, Deaner, the people who are the environmental regulators are feeling very stung by this. They think they're supposed to be the good guys, and they want to know how they got blamed for all this. So that, as a result of that, uh, the environmental department has just been going out of its way to distance itself from any allegations that it's been too soft on Duke, um, hitting them with that big fine, which now we find out they wanted, you know, a a, a fine twice as big at one point, um, and just kind of. uh, you know, doing what they can to uh, to to make sure that they're not in a quote cozy relationship with Duke. And Duke, meanwhile, says, "Well, you're overreacting. You're you're for political reasons. You're trying to make a game of this, uh, or a statement here. And that's not that's right. not fair." Duke him.
2: is actually raising now the political issue itself. Mm-hmm. Duke has raised the political issue in its own court filings.
1: Well, and that's why I was going to say, John Murawski, you picked up on this, right, right. in reading all of this. Um, this, this notion of du- Duke, you know, that they're saying that Diener was overreacting, right? Right. Diener said,
2: uh, Duke said that Diener violated, throughout its rule book, improvised a whole new set of rules so they can come up with a big fine, so they can gin up this huge fine. And the whole motivation, according to Duke, was political, was to show that we are not, we are not, uh, uh, you know, political. Uh, the governor is not duke's puppet essentially and we and our this huge fine proves that and so uh, this is an issue that duke now is raising it's not the environmental ad advocates it's not you know some liberal agitators it's duke itself is raising this issue in court filings not just in offhand comments but in court filings so it becomes part of the court court process
1: and so that's what was about to be litigated right i mean that we would have had some some answer to that question was uh, the administration doing this only for political reasons, or predominantly for political reasons, but at the end of the day, we didn't quite get to the end of that, uh, l- you know, line of inquiry, so to speak. So yeah,
2: D- Duke had put in um, requests for documents, and these are like tens of thousands of documents that were still waiting to receive from the agency. And, and they basically were saying the agency is stonewalling and not, review, not disclosing the documents they're supposed to disclose. And what happened was, when they settled the case, that, that discovery process for internal documents was halted, so the documents now won't be turned over. So we don't, we don't
1: know what they would have
2: shown, but Duke did have a theory that there was a political motivation.
1: And the governor's administration, uh, of course, denies that.
3: They're adamantly in denial about that. <clears throat> not in denial, but they, they're they adamant that that's not the case. It's a real sore spot
1: with them. Very good. It's a very so, sensitive issue with them. Sure, of course, which is what makes it interesting to talk about on the Domecast. So, John Murawski, thank you uh, for being with us. Let's take a break, and uh, we will come back with uh, some hopefully wrapping up a little bit on the legislature. Uh, we'll be back in a minute.
2: Have you checked out the newly designed News & Observer this week? You'll see changes that make all of our products more visually appealing while giving you in-depth coverage and new ways of storytelling. Visit new.newsobserver.com to learn more about the new ways for your news day. As a listener to the Domecast, we have a special offer for you. You can receive the News and Observer Digital Edition for only 99 cents for four weeks. This includes unlimited access to NewsObserver.com, mobile, iPad apps, and the print replica e-edition. Just head over to NewsObserver.com, click subscribe at the top of the page, and enter the promo code DOMECAST to receive this special offer.
1: All right, and welcome back to the Domecast. We thank you for listening. Uh, we're going to jump into, I don't know how good this will go, but we'll call it a pop quiz. So, Colin Campbell of the News and Observer, welcome. Thank you. And Benjamin Brown of the Insider. Hey, hey. Glad to have you both here. All right, so the legislature's out of town, but just wanted to, we're sort of uh, sifting through some data, crunching the numbers, if you will. We're going to try a pop quiz uh, on some votes. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. This isn't like Jeopardy style or anything. But okay, so here's the question. Uh, Looking at the votes, tell me uh, who voted most with the majority. So this would be, uh, you know, a bill passed, and it passed by such and such a margin. And who was on the uh, passing side of the majority on the issue? Uh, So I'll give you a choice. Uh, Overall, all the bills uh, for the session, did uh, Representative Paul Tyne, who is officially unaffiliated, Mm -hmm. had switched from Democrat to unaffiliated, did Representative Paul Stein vote with the majority the most, or uh, Paul Stam, apex Republican, who was with the majority more? Benjamin Brown. Stein I'm sorry, Stam or (laughs) Tyne? We've merged them
4: into Josh Stein, the senator.
1: Tyne
0: or Stam? Who was with the majority the most? My initial guess would be Stam. Colin Campbell?
4: I think it's Tyne. I think that guy is a closet Republican. The answer is Tyne.
1: It was Tyne. (laughs) Tyne voted with the majority 97% of the time a democrat at the right. at the beginning of the session and he ends up at the top of the not the very top but very high up uh skip Stam very close behind uh 95.9 percent of the time skip Stan was with the majority um tell me uh who uh and then we'll just throw in a little uh flavor here at the end of that one uh colin campbell who improved themselves who sort of you know, I don't want to say rising star, but I'll say rising. You know, who sort of made a name for themselves out of the session? I'd say on the House side, uh, among the Republicans, Chuck McGrady. Um, he's
4: a Republican from Hendersonville, very sort of moderate guy. This was his first year as one of the top budget writers, uh, and he distinguished himself through that, but also because he uh, wrote this very candid blog throughout the session, uh, detailing sort of the, the legislator side of things, what it was like to be a legislator, the issues they were. Working working through some of the problems. Uh, And so he became the sort of go-to source for people watching the legislature uh, because he was very open about what was going on. And uh, he's gotten his name in the news a lot. I think we'll see more of him.
0: Ben Brown, Yeah, um, who improved themselves? I definitely agree with McGrady. Uh, On the House side as well, I'd say um, Dean Arp got more floor time than usual on the bonds issue. That's a possibility. Um, And then uh, Darren Jackson also kind of got a gold star for his performance during the final budget debate. Mm-hmm. They seem there. to have lifted themselves up.
1: Uh, you mentioned McGrady. He was behind Tyne. Tyne uh, voted more with mm. the majority than even McGrady. Very close, uh, uh, like, just percentage points. So, all right, let's go to another one. Are you ready? Sure. Who, so let's go to the other side of that. Who voted against the majority? So probably dealing with some Democrats uh actually no let 's see on the over on the Republican side, who was most against the majority was it uh representative Michael speciali or representative larry pittman those i mean that's the, okay. you know that, I mean, this is a close one between those guys <laughs> <laughs> These would obviously be the two Republicans who were you know, most on the outs with the Republicans.
0: They usually come as a pair, but um, before you listed the multiple choice, Speciale popped in my mind. So he's going to be my guess.
4: Yeah, I have to say Speciale, too. I think
1: he's he's as far a contrarian to the rest of the Republicans as you can get. All right. So you guys have been down there enough. You know that that is correct. It was by, he He was only with the majority, 83 percent of the time Pittman with the majority, 84.8.
4: How do so, those guys compare with so, Democrats? So, Are there
1: Democrats that have a similar percentage to them? Okay, so uh, Cotham, Earl, Richardson, Cunningham, Terry, all of them were with the majority more than speciality. I suspect that group's not voting as a block though. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, all right, who was against, um, who was against the majority most of the time? Uh, you want that to be open ended, or you want me to give you a couple choices? Obviously, let's
4: open ended Let's, let's just see, see
1: what we guess. Who was against the majority? Obviously, this would be a Democrat in the House. My guess would be Larry Hall. Larry Hall, the the minority, the Democratic leader in the uh, in the House. I'm thinking camera. Paul
4: Lubkey, the uh, Democrat from Durham, been yeah. in the legislature a long time, very very liberal.
1: Lubkey. Lynn Bonner, I see you way over there. Yeah. You think uh, it's Yeah. I'm going to say Paul Loopkey. Uh Lubke is close. He was second. Actually, it is Pricey Harrison. Pricey oh, Harrison. Pricey okay. Harrison, okay. Democrat from uh, Greensboro, uh, was only with the majority. Now, when we say only, I mean, listen to this, folks. Uh, 74.8% of the time, Pricey Harrison was with the majority. And that really, you know, that underscores... Very almost most of what they're doing is um, you know with with very uh, wide support you know and we spend a lot of time talking about differences and things like that but there you go in the house uh, really twenty five percent of the time is is the only is is this, you know most contrarian if that makes sense I hope I'm making sense oh, yeah uh, tell me uh, Ben Brown uh, who Speaking of well, I don't want to I don't want to lead lead the uh, mm-hmm. lead you, but who I don't want to say uh, sort of, I guess the opposite of a rising star would be someone who sank. That sounds a little harsh, but you know who was who didn't necessarily improve themselves as the uh, session went along. Who
0: who um, who is somebody on the flip side of the rising star? That's hard to say. Um, throughout the session, there were individual instances of people who maybe in some positions of power who were rebuked a couple times, um, you know, so I'm not going to use the word sank, but people who were kind of rebuked a few times would include, you know, th- there were some bills where Stam wasn't successful with what he wanted to do. There were some bills where, um, and, and, and some instances where uh, Hager as the majority leader didn't necessarily oh, sure, have yeah. the complete support. Yeah, there were some um, episodes early on. That yeah. That's right. So, so I might cut myself off there. Yeah. Um and uh, keep people from yelling at me. But well, it I've
4: it got a couple ideas. Okay, yeah. um, sure. People you really haven't heard from this session. They didn't necessarily lose anything, uh, but they just were not out front, as they had been in the past session. It was in the House. Uh, Justin Burr, who had some powerful committee chairs under Tom Tillis, ditto for Julia Howard, a longtime Republican from uh, Moxville, I believe. Um, and we really didn't see much of them this session, in part, I think, because they had not supported Tim Moore for speaker. And so, in a sense, he punished them by it. Taking away some of the committee chair uh, positions that they had enjoyed finance under Tillis.
0: For Howard, yeah, there, there were there were spots, um, I, I think, during the, the office moving shuffle. There were some uh, some unpleasantries there. But I, I remember seeing Howard after uh, she didn't get uh, reappointed to, what was it, finance chair? I think she was, yeah, she was a finance chair. And uh, I asked her straight up, you know, like, what's, what's your reading on that? And she said, maybe it's because I didn't support more for speaker. Hmm. Interesting.
1: I'll throw one more in there. Larry Hall. Uh, You know, uh, he saw a a faction sort of develop and grow um, uh, where the Democratic uh, uh, caucus is, I think it's fair to say, split. Um, over on that side. And mm-hmm. so. Um, yeah, the Main Street Democrats
4: group led by Ken Goodman, a uh, Democrat from Rockingham that's more of a rural, pro business, moderate Dems, uh, they've really grown their numbers this session. This was the first session they even existed. Yeah. And a lot of times they voted as a block, whereas Larry Hall and some of the more liberal Democrats voted as a block, but Representative Hall didn't have that many of the Democrats
0: behind him. And that, that kind of speaks also to I think we mentioned the House side on who kind of improved their positions. Uh, I'd say Goodman and Joel Ford on the Senate side, um, for the Main Street Democrats, kind of lifted their names up a little bit. And, and, of course, we have to mention Jeff Jackson, too, who got some national attention for his uh, Twitter mm. activities, the just-one-legislator thing. So that would be someone who improved. Yeah, he's the
1: social uh, media winner of this session, I think. Yeah. No doubt <laughs> uh, about that. All right, well, let's uh, take a break. We'll come back with our headliners of the week.
3: Did you know when you donate a kidney, you give the gift of life?
2: I had no idea you could donate an organ while you were still alive. If I'm born with two healthy kidneys but only need one, I'd do it again.
3: Visit the National Kidney Foundation at kidney.org. Now you know.
1: And welcome back to the Domecast. We thank you for listening and let's get straight to our... Uh, final segment of uh, one we call Headliners of the Week. If you're a regular listener, you know that we uh, nominate somebody, argue you know why they should be the headliner, the newsmaker of the week, and then uh, we pick somebody just for fun. So let's get straight to it. 45 seconds uh, is the limit on this uh, part of it. Uh, I'm looking around here. Ben Brown. Ben Brown, tell us, who is your
0: Headliner of the week. I'm going to go with Harry Reid for a reason that's a little bit obscure. He he was spotted in Raleigh by more than one person I spoke with yesterday, being Thursday uh, downtown in Raleigh. Harry Reid. Uh, I called his people. They confirmed he was around. And the obvious, you know, first guess would be that you know, was he here to recruit somebody? Was this something regarding 2016? Uh, but his people said he was only here for personal reasons. He didn't hold meetings. No official or political business. He was down for a funeral, uh, but according to the obit, uh, it was in Greenville. So, dot, dot, dot. But I'll say Harry Reid. Harry Reid, a a uh, side, was coming in the side
1: door headliner of mm-hmm. the week. Let's um, go now to Colin Campbell. Tell us who is your headliner of the week. Going with
4: uh, former state representative uh, Deborah Ross, Democrat of Raleigh, uh, who is making. Whoa, hold on—that's a segue from Harry Reid to uh, Deborah. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, um, but she was uh, been making more moves towards uh, announcing a bid to run for U.S. Senate against Richard Burr this week. Uh, Here, uh, the one Democratic uh, candidate already announced, Chris Ray, who's the uh, mayor of Spring Lake, which is a town near Fayetteville, uh, issued a press release welcoming her to the race because he understood she was making announcement videos. She says she's building. A team. She hasn't officially announced yet, uh, but uh, if it's her versus Ray, I think she'll probably be one of the front runners uh, in the quest for the Democratic nomination to
1: face Richard Burr next year. Interesting. Deborah Ross, of course, uh, was the lawyer out at the old uh, Triangle Transit. I think it's called Goat. Yeah,
4: so she quit that job as she considered her run. Mm-hmm. You know, She was involved with the ACLU prior to uh, that even. So uh, a pretty big name among Democrats in the Triangle area.
1: And something we've talked about a lot is who would face uh, Richard Burr. So all signs point uh, to Deborah Ross getting into the race. Okay, good. So uh, headliner of the week there. Let's go now to Lynn Bonner. Lynn Bonner of the News and Observer. Tell us, who is your headliner of the week? I'm going to pick uh, Congressman Mark Meadows of North Carolina. Um, He filed
0: a motion back in July to oust uh, U.S. House Speaker John Boehner. Um, Now, Boehner has uh, said he's not going to be Speaker anymore, um, and neither is Kevin McCarthy. So... uh, If he didn't make the dominoes fall, he certainly made them wobble uh, with his opposition and open opposition to Boehner, starting back uh, earlier in the summer. So I'm going to pick, uh, represent Mark Meadows as my headliner. Mark
1: Meadows from out uh, west, western part of the state. Western part of the state. Okay, Mark Meadows in the hat. Uh, Instigator Mark Meadows. All right, let's go now to Craig Jarvis. Uh, Craig Jarvis of the News and Observer. Tell us, who is your headliner of the week?
3: Well, I don't know if he's really a headliner of the week so much as he was a blip of the day, but he got a bunch of us in the political world stirred up. A couple days ago, he tweeted uh, that he would have a big announcement the next day. So we immediately went to his Facebook page, and uh, um, he had he filmed about a two-, two-and-a-half-minute video of himself kind of laying out what he, his beliefs um, of course, he was a. Uh, he ran against Tom, Tom Tillis in the Republican primary for Senate last year, um, but he um, he uh, filmed it in front of the governor's mansion. So that led to all sorts of speculation that well, perhaps he's about to announce for governor. But by uh, but by daybreak, we saw that he what he actually did was announce was just announcing the formation of a new nonprofit called Organized for Liberty uh, that will be, uh, I guess. Calling candidates, pushing uh, pushing an agenda, uh, you know, throwing out language like uh, this is a, this is for all patriots in our fight for liberty, that sort of thing. Uh, uh, and he was probably sitting back, amused at the extra attention that the whole thing got, but uh, that, that's what it amounted to.
1: So, Greg Brannon more publicity for a formation of a uh, committee than we've seen in some time it
3: was a little bit of a letdown uh,
1: yeah all right well, let's go now hey uh intern liz bell is with us welcome thank you liz bell a little under the weather but <laughs> yes. so uh okay tell us liz bell who is your headliner of the week
4: i'm gonna go with senator tom Tillis. um uh, he came out this week taking a pretty strong stance against the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, deal, which will end up in the lab of, of Congress early next year, um, saying he's worried about the effect the deal will have on agricultural industries, specifically singling out tobacco. And there's a lot of controversial issues from agriculture to intellectual property rights to pharmaceuticals that will have a big impact on North Carolina industries, so I'm going to go with Tillis, looking out for these specific carve-outs in the deal.
1: U.S. Senator Tom Tillis—that's uh, a name we haven't mentioned a lot on the Dome Cast. I guess we focus so, so much on, uh, you know, more state politics than up at the federal level. Uh, Liz Bell uh, and and uh, yours truly—we're going to team up on a piece on this TPP, hopefully for Sunday Dome. So uh, more coming on that. Tom Tillis in the hat. So looking around, Pat Gannon, where? He's uh, stepped aside, so I guess we won't hear from him. Uh, This is the moment. Uh, I can tell you who I think the headliner of the week is, and it's uh, Lynn Bonner, I think, hit the mark. Yeah, Mark uh, Meadows. Uh, But I'm going to add in a Walter Jones to that. So uh, Walter Jones as well, uh, who... So there's sort of two parts to that, right? Mark Meadows, instrumental, a uh, lot of credit on the uh, Boehner uh, uh, resignation, if you will. And then, of course, uh, Walter Jones weighs in with a letter uh, here that, uh, that really sank uh, McCarthy. And, and so now the whole thing is a big mess. Um, that's a, a term of art, big mess. So uh, we'll throw, we'll add Walter Jones into that. So Mark Meadows and Walter Jones, uh, and yeah. Um, so someday when the history books are written, they'll get uh, a small chapter, I'm sure. So that maybe we'll try to see if we can grab some uh, audio of uh, Walter Jones uh, the, talking about his letter. And uh, send, us some, uh, send us some tips to dome at newsobserver.com, and we'll look at them. So thanks again, and we will see you soon.
0: you know about Kevin McCarthy that I don't know? Well, I don't know. Uh, this was written primarily because i have been here 20 years, and I remember the night that Newt stepped down, the next night Bob Livingston stepped down, and the chaos it put the Republican Party in.